I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our Father, we think of our nation this morning and how we are seeing your judgment as we have turned from you. You've given us over to an upside-down mind where more and more what people should call good, they call evil, and what they call evil, they should call good. We know our nation is desperately sick and only you can redeem it. So we pray first for ourselves that the body of Christ might be bright lights, that we would be salt that preserves righteousness, like a light that dispels darkness. May our life be so clean and so close as we cling to Christ. We think of those leaders that you've put over us, whether someone likes them or not, you've commanded us to pray for each one. We pray for our president this morning, that you would help him, that he would be able to lead our country in a way that's honorable to you. Thank you that our vice president knows you and loves you and that he's able to counsel our president. We thank you that he has stood on the side of Israel, and we thank you that our president has stood on the side of life. Give him strength in the midst of opposition, that our freedoms might be protected, that we might have freedom to live peaceably in order to preach the gospel, because you're not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, we know in our midst this morning, some here, some in Grays, some in Graniteville, some in Bluffton, some live streaming, that there is deep heartache some who've lost someone close, someone who is facing a serious surgery, someone who is in the midst of a severe sickness. Thank you that you promised never to leave us nor forsake us, that you would always be with us even to the end of the age. Thank you that we cannot possibly flee from your presence, that if we make our bed even in the place of the grave, you are there. If we go to the remotest part of the earth, you are there. We bless you, our Father, for loving us with an everlasting love. And thank you that when you saved us, you committed to shaping us into the image of your Son. And what you've begun, you promised someday to complete. But today, as we open your word, we know it is your tool to renew the way we think about life, about ourselves, about others. So may the power of your word have full force in our lives today. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to be our teacher, the one who inspired this book. May you illumine it to our hearts today. Help me, Father, through the meetings today, this meeting, in grays in just an hour or two. Later tonight here, I pray, Father, for some people listening to me today that need a church home and some who need to settle the issue of salvation. They would come to one of the Meet the Pastor meetings. So we commit our way to you because without you, we can do nothing, but with you, all things are possible. And we bless you, Father, in Jesus' holy name, amen. 
Take God's Word with you this morning, Revelation chapter 19. Last week, we turned a corner as uh, we are in the third section of the book, the futuristic section, and John is unfolding for us as it's given to him through Jesus Christ, the next events that are going to take place. The future is before us, and much of it is described here in the 19th chapter, and the future is important to people. That's why Americans will spend billions of dollars this year alone on the occult and the New Age movement, because they are frenzied about the future. Yet the Bible is clear, there's only one who can speak authoritatively about the future, and that is God Himself. Now, Revelation 19 is a familiar chapter, one of the more familiar chapters in all the Bible to a believer. And if you're not familiar with this chapter, you need to be, and I hope in these several occasions as we study the 19th chapter, God will help you to see it and how it applies to your life today. I mean, the accolades of Revelation 19 are really endless because a day is coming when Jesus will first come for the church. We call that the rapture. We'll meet Him in the air. But then He will come back with His church to the earth. And when Christ comes back, all doubts will be silenced. All skeptics will have their mouths closed. All of the injustices that we see in this world will be corrected, and all debates, all apologetics will cease because Jesus will literally, physically, actually be here. And once He returns, there'll be no further need to defend His deity or to debate His claims because every eye will see that He is indeed Lord. Now, Revelation 19 pictures for us one of the most dramatic events in all of the Word of God. And if you remember, on the final week of Jesus' public ministry, the disciples asked Him about His second coming. They knew little about the rapture. The rapture, the Bible describes it as a mystery, a mysterion, something that was hidden but is now being revealed. And it wasn't until actually the next day that Jesus revealed for them the teaching concerning the rapture. It's in the Old Testament if you have eyes to see it. It's easier for us to see and people like Enoch and others uh, because we live on this side of the cross and we have the full revelation of Scripture. But the second coming is explained all the way through the various prophets. And so they asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things happen? He just said the temple was going to be destroyed and not one stone would stand upon another and that He would come back. Tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And He elucidates all the way through that 24th chapter those signs. And then He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus warned us that His second coming would be preceded by a time of great tribulation. And so in chapters 6 through 18, we have been studying a series of 21 judgments where God is bringing tribulation to the earth. And of course, there's no mention of the church beginning in chapter 4 through the 18th chapter because the church is brought up into heaven through an open door. We have been raptured during the tribulation. We will be evaluated and we will be rewarded accordingly for our service. So here in verses 1 through 10... 
of this 19th chapter, we find the church that is in heaven. And we saw last week God's people singing in heaven as they prepare for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, beginning now in verse 7, let's read our text where we left off last time. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, people for centuries, of course, have always asked, how will it all end? And that's why the average person is interested in the future, and that's why many non-Christians somehow always want to study the book of Revelation. It helps me to understand why so many people will seek things like astrology and spiritism. In fact, just this week, a church in Atlanta, it's called the Vision Church, they call themselves a progressive congregation. Whenever you see someone use the term, I'm a progressive Christian, just write liberalism over their forehead because they are departing from true orthodoxy. And this particular mega church in Atlanta just added a full-time psychic medium to their staff who claims to be able to commune with the dead. When she was interviewed, I read in the Atlanta Times, uh, this pastor, this associate pastor, this woman pastor, when I asked God why this gift, why not singing, God said, I promised my people eternal life. How will my people know that I've kept my promise if you don't demonstrate your gift? Well, I thought the Bible was enough to know that we have eternal life and that God will keep his promises. But this pastorette Foster argues that her ability as a psychic medium to communicate with the dead to those who have gone on is how God gives assurance. In fact, she quoted in the article James 1.17 that says, every good and perfect gift is from above, and that this was a gift God had given her. Actually, Deuteronomy chapter 18 teaches this is one of the devil's gifts. Moses wrote, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. And then the next verse assesses how God views the vision church in Atlanta. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them, the Canaanites, out before you. We don't need a psychic to tell us the future. God has given us his word. Peter calls it a light in a dark place. He calls it a more sure word of prophecy, even more sure and more reliable than the magnificent experience he had on the Mount of the Transfiguration. Well, here in the 19th and 20th chapters, he is recording the key events that will wrap up human history as we know it before he ushers in a brand new heaven and a brand new earth and that place called the New Jerusalem, the Father's house, will literally actually physically come down out of the heaven and become the capital city of that new earth. We're going to study that in the 21st chapter. But here, just to bring you into the immediate context, 
there is an announcement of sorts that's going on in heaven. And of course, when a wedding is going to take place, it's typically announced. And at this wedding, it is no different, except it's not here comes the bride, it's here comes the groom. And there are a lot of people in heaven at this point, they are praising God, they are worshiping God. In fact, now that Babylon has fallen, they're commanded to rejoice over her. If you look back at chapter 18 and verse 20, let me read it to you. God said, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And what we read in the first six verses of chapter 19 is the obedience to that command. The chapter opens, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added over a thousand years after the Bible is completed, so don't let them distract you. When you see these three words, after these things, the thoughtful reader would immediately ask, after what things? After what God did in chapters 17 and 18, how God through 10 kings first destroyed religious Babylon, and then how God Himself through the final bull judgment destroys economic Babylon. Babylon, which I suggested to you as the city of Rome in light of Scripture interpreting Scripture will be the capital city of the Antichrist. It is there that he will rule from. And because of his empire, millions and millions of people will be beheaded. And so here's John, and he hears something like a loud voice, a megalophone. We get our word megaphone from it, a loud voice. And now the worldly music of chapter 18 has been silenced, and heaven is filled with praise. And of course, it's a great multitude. We were introduced to this great multitude back in chapter 7. Do you remember it? After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, because God saved 144,000 Jewish men who'd been preaching the gospel throughout the world for seven years. A great multitude of people are saved from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And God had been adding to it this entire time. Why is that? Because God takes no delight in condemnation. God takes no pleasure, he said, in the death of the wicked. Jesus himself said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I told you last time, why does Community Bible Church exist? God is very clear why we are to exist. Number one, to exalt the Savior. Number two, to evangelize the lost. And number three, to edify the saints. That's why every local church is to exist, to exalt Christ, not some man, not some denominations, not some church's name, to exalt Jesus, to evangelize the lost, and to edify the body of Christ. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Hallelujah, it appears four times in the New Testament, all instances here in the 19th chapter. We saw that the word hallelujah comes from hallel. Hallel is a Hebrew word that means to praise. And yah, part of the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And it's the word for Lord. And so the word hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. In Greek, it's hallelujah. 
It's a little bit different. If you look at it, it just looks like it begins with the letter A, unless you looked very carefully and you would see what looked like a backwards apostrophe over the top of the A, and it's a rough breathing mark that produces the aspiration, ha. So in the Greek Bible, it's not hallelujah, it's hallelujah, hallelujah. But some English Bibles read hallelujah because they're following the Latin And the King James came out of the Latin Bible, among other things, there in the British Isles. But it is technically hallelujah. So if you want to brag a little bit to say that you know one word in every language of the world, you can say hallelujah, because that is a universal world wherever you go today. And so here's the first occurrence of it. Hallelujah. I heard a loud voice and a great multitude saying, hallelujah. They are praising God. Now in chapters 4 and 5, they're praising the Lord for the cross, for the blood, for the empty tomb, for the Lamb who is risen and resurrected and seated there in heaven. But here they are praising God for a different reason, a reason that we don't often think of, for God's righteous judgment and wrath for his salvation, for his deliverance. Now, the word salvation can literally refer to your being redeemed with the blood of Christ. But very often in the Bible, in both Testaments, salvation is used to describe deliverance from some evil. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong to God. Why? Because, here's the reason, his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot That's Babylon, that's chapters 17 and 18, the capital city of the Antichrist, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. We don't often think of praising God for putting down evil, but it is something you will see throughout the Psalms, and it is something that we will do. By the way, this is you in heaven. You are in this scene. We have been raptured at this point. You are witnessing what you are going to be saying here in the future. And they will be praising God because your judgments are true and righteous. And I noted for you last time, there's a change in typeset, isn't there? And that tells you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 19. Psalm 19 opens with general revelation. General revelation is a term theologians use and pastors to describe that information, that revelation that God has given to everyone, no matter where they are born on the face of the earth. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? That's why God devotes one half of one birth to, a- to, to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. All men know God exists through the creation, and as Paul will argue, through the conscience within. Gentiles not having the law or law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written into their hearts, their conscience defending or accusing them. See, God wrote into your spiritual DNA his law. That's why we know the difference between right and wrong, just and unjustice, because we're made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. That's general revelation. But then there's specific revelation, and some of you are here today, some of you are under the sound of my voice hearing specific revelation, namely the Holy Scriptures, because you responded to general revelation. And so he'll go on, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. 
making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in the next verse, which John quotes from here in the Revelation, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. No one can challenge that God's judgments are true and righteous. And he says that in verse 2, quoting Psalm 19.9, because his judgments are true and righteous. Multiplied millions who have been slaughtered and executed by the Antichrist kingdom are praising God in heaven for his judgment upon those lost people. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. Notice again another Old Testament quotation. The quote is from the Song of Moses. This is one of three songs or prayers that Moses makes in the Old Testament. One in Exodus 15 when they crossed at the Red Sea. The other in Psalm 90 and the third right before Moses died. And he's quoting that third one here in Deuteronomy 32. They're praising God because truth and justice has prevailed. Now understand these people on the earth have reached a point where they are unsavable. No one else is going to be saved at this point. And God's people in a glorified body with absolute righteousness and no vengeance in their heart because vengeance is the Lord's. When they are praising God for his wrath, they are really praising God for his justice that he is a righteous God. Further, verse 3, and a second time, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. This is not simply the second verse, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. No, they are affirming again. They have heightened the reason for God's praise because of the finality of his judgment. And again, you will see that this is an Old Testament quote. It comes from Isaiah 34 and verse 10. And there in the context, it describes the second coming of the Messiah to the earth. And her smoke rises up, though Babylon has been destroyed, though this earth will someday be incinerated before God makes a new one, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Why? Because the judgment of God is eternal. It never, ever, ever ends. It's sobering to think. And yet here they are praising God for who he is, for all of his attributes. Have you ever just stopped to think about some attribute of God and begun to praise him for it? Praise him for his mercy. Pause and praise him for his grace. Without asking God for anything, praise him sometime for some of the, dim the dimensions of who we are, he is. And of course, they are inseparable. And not only are they praising them, these, this grand multitude, but notice who's helping to lead it, verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Six times the apostle John mentions the 24 elders. This is the last time. The first time we were introduced to them in Revelation 4.4 when a door is opened in heaven. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones were 24 elders, and they're in white garments, and they have golden crowns on their head. And we saw that it is very important to identify who these 24 elders are. And we looked and examined a few passages where the number 24 is a representative number of a vast multitude. So who do these 24 represent? The church. 
They do not represent Israel because Israel is in the midst of the time of Jacob's trouble during this seven years. The purpose of the tribulation that Daniel spoke of, that Jeremiah affirmed, that virtually every Old Testament prophet spoke of in some way, shape, or form is to bring Israel to repentance. That these people are in heaven ever before the tribulation starts. These are not angels, because angels don't sit on thrones. They don't wear crowns. God has given the promise to the church, the body of Christ, that we will reign and rule with Him, not to mention they're called elders. And the word elder usually refers to an older man, and angels, of course, don't age. It's an oxymoron to call an angel an elder. Here these 24 elders are, and they are worshiping with the four living creatures. The Zoe, these are not some hideous beasts. The New King James redid it instead of four beasts. It describes them as four living creatures because these are God's cherubim, whom we saw earlier in our study of the Revelation, who can change their appearance, just like an angel can appear as a human, and you can entertain them unaware, so cherubim can change their appearance. And here they are, they are praising God, and they are saying, amen, hallelujah. Now, there's one verse in the Old Testament where amen and hallelujah are bled together. Let me read it to you. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let the people say amen, and it's hallelujah, or here interpreted, praise the Lord. Amen is a widely used word by believers. We use it typically at the end of every prayer, though sometimes we don't know what it really means. But when we say amen, we say, I agree. I affirm what you're saying. I was listening to one of the governors this week, and he was protecting human life as he signed a bill, and the people behind him were saying, amen, meaning we stand with you, governor. We agree with you. But sometimes the word amen is found in the beginning of a sentence. We don't see that in our English Bible, but some of you are using other translations here. Your Bible reflects that. For instance, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. And so when it leads off a verse, it's saying that what I'm going to say is absolute truth from someone who has firsthand knowledge, and of course, the Lord Jesus did. And so whenever you see verily, verily, or truly, truly, you're seeing amen, amen, and you should really listen to what they are going to say. Now, the word amen, sometimes you just kind of overflow on the inside and you say amen, and that's okay. And sometimes it's okay to say hallelujah, but don't use it in vain. If you just say it mindlessly, then you're taking the name of the Lord God in vain. I read this week about two Christians on a cruise ship. They were from different countries, and the cruise was not what they expected. And the cruise just turned into one big, drunken, immoral party. So one man from one country walked out on the deck, as did another, and they were reading their Bibles, and they bumped into each other. And they noticed that they had Bibles, but they couldn't communicate because they were from two different languages. And occasionally, one would point and point to a verse, and 
he'd show it to him in his Bible because the chapter and verse divisions are pretty much the same. And, and brother would, one brother would say amen, and the other brother would show him another verse, and he'd point to it, and the other brother would go, hallelujah. <laughs> That's all right. Amen, hallelujah. Those are two words we know in every language. My Hebrew professor tells me that we will speak Hebrew when we get to heaven. I don't know what language we speak. I do know we'll be able to understand each other, even if we speak a multiplicity of languages. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to God. And so in case you're a little reluctant to give praise, God commands it. A voice came from the throne. This is not the voice of God the Father or God the Son, for he says, give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, however you're classified by man, the great and the small. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of a mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Like a hundred thousand fans in a football stadium, this gigantic roar in heaven, a vast multitude that John will compare later to the sands of the seashore that no one can count. And they are giving God praise for his supremacy, that he is victorious, that he is sovereign, that he is now beginning to rule. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Literally, it says the Lord God omnipotent has begun to reign. Now, wait a minute. I thought God's on his throne this morning. He is. But he hasn't yet begun to reign on earth. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for the kingdom, that the Lord God will literally come and rule and reign upon the earth. Right now, for the most part, the Lord Jesus gets the short end of the stick. People use his name in vain. They mock they make fun of the morality that Christians and even Orthodox Jews espouse. But someday there'll be no making and no mocking. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Isn't that magnificent? Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see three truths about this marriage supper of the Lamb that God will bring his bride, the church, back to earth to celebrate. First, this bride is a beautiful bride. This bride will be beautiful. The bride that Christ will bring to the marriage supper of the Lamb will be an absolutely beautiful bride. This is a special event. Now, think about a wedding. You can probably, most of you remember your own wedding, and you probably remember a lot of details that will never be forgotten. I mean, think about all the planning and all the praying and all the purchasing that went into it. And I might add stress in a lot of situations. But it's a magnificent day. It's a day you will never forget. Well, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Why? Because it's a, it's a causal in the original meaning for, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So another reason to rejoice, to give God praise and glory, is because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And that's one of the reasons. They are filled with praise and giving glory to the Lord who's on his throne and about to bring that throne here to the earth as we will study in our next exposition of this chapter. Now understand the closeness 
that a man and a woman know in a healthy marriage is incomparable to anything else on this earth. And that's one of the reasons why God likens His people to His bride. He calls Israel His bride in the Old Testament. He calls the church here in the New Testament His bride. And it's no surprise because at this point in human history, now in unfallen, glorified bodies here on the earth, what God had promised is going to happen. And what you see in this chapter to most Jewish people would be profoundly important because the way they do a wedding and the way we do a wedding is a little bit different. So we need to go back into the first century culture and understand how a wedding was unfolded in order to appreciate all that God is saying for us. Right now, the church is betrothed. We are, so to speak, engaged to Christ, though slightly different. There's coming a day when we'll be presented to Christ, and then will come the wedding feast. There's actually four events. There's the betrothal, there's the presentation, there's the ceremony, and there's the wedding feast. As little kids, we used to kind of see two kids that liked each other, and we'd say, you know, Johnny and Katie sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes, you know, Fred and the baby carriage, or whatever it is. Well, uh, that's not a bad progression of events, except for kissing in the tree part. But understand, that's not the way it happened in the average Jewish wedding. In fact, that's not the way it happens today and the average Orthodox Jewish wedding. It's not first comes love and then comes marriage. It's first comes marriage and then comes love. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and it's interesting in all the hotels that we've stayed in in Jerusalem, they're meeting places for the Orthodox. And I like to sit back and kind of watch because I, I see this young man who's waiting and he's being introduced to a woman most of the time he's never met before in his life. And it's their first meeting. And the parents, sometimes under the supervision of a rabbi, I have a rabbi friend there who told me he's been involved in the matching of 137 weddings. That was at last count, he told me. And so they would meet each other for the first time. And they would get betrothed. And the betrothal, of course, typically lasted for a year. Some of you have read Genesis 24 where Isaac and Rebekah get married. But remember, when he meets Rebekah, he had never seen her before. Then Isaac took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. First came the marriage and then came the love. Why? Because the parents decided whom they would marry. And by the way, in some cultures of the world, one of my pastor friends in India, he said, my daughter's getting married. I said, I didn't know she was dating anyone. She said, she wasn't. We arranged the marriage. Oh, wonderful. That's great. He said, it works. Trust me. Okay. Well, during the betrothal period, it's a little bit different from an engagement. Engagements are made to be broken. When you're betrothed, you're actually called husband and wife. That's why in Matthew 119, Though Joseph had had no relationship with Mary, he's called the husband of Mary. And when he finds out she's pregnant, he assumes that she has been unfaithful. And so he's going to put her away. You could translate it. He's going to divorce her. So it's a legally binding relationship. And of course, two young people, when they are betrothed to each other, it was an opportunity to demonstrate for the bride to be her purity over that course of a year 
because that's how long typically a betrothal took place. And it was a time for the groom to be also to describe, to define his faithfulness as he would go and prepare a place for his bride. And so we read in Matthew 1.18, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together and she was found to be with child. And now everything seemingly is shattered until the angel of God tells Joseph what happened is not immorality, but a supernatural miracle birth. And Joseph, in great faith, embraces the word from heaven that God gives. Now, a wedding and the preparation that goes with it is one of the best analogies of how we can understand the return of Jesus. Biblically, right now, we are betrothed, so to speak. We are anticipating the return of the groom from heaven. But that's only part of the story. Now, think your way through this for a moment. If you speak to an engaged woman, typically it's not long before she will begin to talk about her wedding that's coming and all the planning. And if she really loves the guy, she'll just talk nonstop about him or vice versa. That's what you do. And let me just say parenthetically, you are engaged, so to speak. You are betrothed to Christ. And if you really love him, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. You're anticipating his return. And if you're not anticipating the great wedding day, maybe because you haven't really been taught biblical prophecy, or maybe you've heard some pastor teach prophecy in an unbalanced, inaccurate way, But we as God's people are to be looking forward to an event. Paul said, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. At a wedding, it's customary to focus on the bride. But in this case, the bridegroom. Let us, look at verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. Now, the bride is the body of Christ. It's the church, born-again believers. If you've taken my church, excuse my, my church, my course on the church called ecclesiology, ecclesia is the word that is often rendered church in the New Testament, most of the time in reference to a local church, sometimes the universal body of Christ. But the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. The Bible teaches it began on the day of Pentecost. And right now, God is building His church. He is gathering people into this universal bride. It's not made of a particular local church or stripe. It's anyone and everyone who's been born again and bought with the blood of Christ. And so, we've been talking about this great multitude in heaven who are praising God because they're getting ready to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, the people we're talking about is you and I. We're here in heaven. We are reading about the future, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Now, one aspect of the betrothal is if a man wanted to marry a particular girl, he would go and he would agree with with a dad for a purchase price. What was the function behind that? It was to demonstrate that he was financially capable, that he could leave and cleave. When a young man comes to me and he wants me to perform a a wedding for his prospective bride, you know, we minimum six months, 
Minimum six one-hour appointments, minimum of about 20 hours of homework. But one of the things they have to demonstrate to me, if I'm going to do it, I said, look, if you want to get married, you can just go down to the city hall. And one guy said to me, I said, how'd you get married? He said, we went down to the city hall and the lady behind the desk was on the phone and we handed her the form and she signed it and then stamped it, notary, and handed it to him. She, congratulations. I said, you can do that. But I'm not in the marrying business. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And one of the things a young man has to be able to do is that he all by himself without any help from his wife's salary, if she is, of course, without children, is provide for. So a man would demonstrate his ability through the purchase price. And of course, here in verse 7, Jesus is referred to as the lamb. When we come down to verse 16, when he comes back to the earth, he's called the King of kings and Lord of lords. But the emphasis here is on the purchase price. Christ loved the church, Paul wrote, and gave himself up for her. We've been bought with a price, not with things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb. But after the Jewish betrothal period came, then the groom would come and he would collect his bride. And he would take the bride back to that home that he had been preparing there on his father's land. And of course, let me just say this morning, again, if you are not longing for the return of Christ, it means one of two things. Either you've never met him, you're just a cardboard, phony Christian, Christianized, but not born again, or two, you've met him. But your heart is a million miles away. You're living in sin. You're living in disobedience. And that's why you never even think about the Savior returning from heaven. And so Christ is preparing a place for us. This imagery is not accidental. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. The Old English says many mansions. That was superb in the 17th century because the word mansion from the Latin vulgate meant a room. Today, the word mansion, we, we think of this large palatial home. No, in my father's house, there's many rooms, many apartments, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. First, he's coming to get his bride. He's going to take us where he is. He's going to take us to heaven because we're not going to be here during the time of the tribulation. This is his promise to the bride, and he has been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years, and I can't wait to see it. Now, it might seem odd to you, that during these seven years while we're in heaven, we're going to have a time of evaluation. But it's taught in the Scriptures. Here's a chart to help you to visualize it. Right now, we're in the church age. God is gathering a bride for His Son. In one of these days, it could happen today. The last person who's going to become a member of the body of Christ will call upon Jesus in salvation, and the Father will say, go get your bride. The church will be caught up. And this seven-year period that will come, conclude with the second coming, while the tribulation is taking place on earth, the Bema seat of Christ is taking place in heaven. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one will be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, 
There's coming a day when God is going to evaluate your service. And in the New Testament, it's largely in the local church. Now, some of you are out there and you're leading a Bible study for this organization or that organization. That's all well and good. But if you're not serving in God's local church, you're not putting the emphasis where God puts it. And one of the things he's going to evaluate is your service in the local assembly. And of course, this evaluation is not to see if you get into heaven, but based on 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14 and verse 12, it's how you will be rewarded in heaven throughout all of eternity. Now, I want you to see the beauty of his bride here in verse 8. Notice what he says. It was given to her to clothe herself in the fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Three descriptive words that describe the bridal robe that each of us will wear. First of all, he says it's fine linen. In the first century, that would have popped off the page. That was a very expensive and beautiful piece of cloth. Second, the Bible says that this robe is bright. It's a Greek word that can also be translated shining. There's not a single English word that will capture it. It's a bright robe. It's a shining robe. And third, his bride or his wife is put out there in the margin, literally in the Greek, is also dressed in a clean garment. This word clean is often translated pure in the New Testament. So this beautiful garment that each of God's people will wear in heaven is further defined, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, at first, that may seem a little confusing. As you think, well, why do I have a robe based on my righteous acts? Well, as we've been studying in the Revelation, there are two expressions of the robe that God gives His people when they get to heaven. On the one hand, there's a righteousness that you can never earn or achieve. It's imputed to your account. To go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. So God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin there on the cross, to become sin on our behalf, so that in order that we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God, that's what you need that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So Paul tells us, as he writes to the Philippians, that he is planning to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, because that fell short. Paul will say in Galatians 3, unless you obey every single aspect of the law, you're cursed. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, yet here in verse 8, he speaks of the righteous acts of the saints. Understand, on the one hand, God gives you a robe that comes from imputed righteousness. On the other hand, God gives you a robe that is based on how you lived out that imputed righteousness. And the book of Ephesians brings them both together. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I will not get to heaven and brag and tell you why I'm there because of anything I've done, because I didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift. Gifts are not earned, they're received. For we, the next verse, are his workmanship, poema. We get our English word poetry. We're God's poetry created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by works. We're saved unto or for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Think about this. 
When God saved you, he, had a, he has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you know that there are certain goals, certain works, a certain ministry that God has for you today? I don't want to get to heaven and for God to say, well, this is what I wanted you to be and to do, but you only achieved this much. No, I want to walk in the works that God pre- prepared beforehand that I might achieve his purposes for us. Now, God's not putting you under pressure. Understand how this all works out. Paul says God imputes a righteousness to you. It's given as a gift. And when you are justified, you are regenerated. You are made alive in the Holy Spirit. In a moment's time, you become a new creature. Peter says you become a partaker of the divine nature. And that's why the apostle Paul can tell the Philippians, work out your salvation. Don't work for it because you can't earn it. But once you've received it, work it out. Work out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're justified. You are imputed with righteousness. You are regenerated by the Spirit, made a partaker of the divine nature. And then he is now shaping you. How does he shape you and mold you so that you can achieve the plan that he has through you, for you? By the word of God. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 26, that we're being cleansed by the washing of water with the word. God renews our mind. He, it's his beauty cream, so to speak, the word of God. That's why I'm supposed to preach the Bible on Sunday morning. That's why I don't preach for 12 minutes. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. I open the Word of God. I explain it because God's Word is the tool that will shape your life that you and I might together become what God's called us to as we rely upon the Holy Spirit to pull it off. And then in this beauty treatment, we meet God when He takes us up into heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Right now, we may have some spots and blemishes, but he's going to give us a new robe, and that robe will describe and picture the righteous acts of the saints. I remember about a year ago, my granddaughter said, Granddad, will you, will you watch Cinderella with us? I said, okay, I'll watch Cinderella with you. And we watched her there, you know, with ash all over her face and just despised and rejected by her stepmother and her sisters. Now, that's kind of the way we are. We're like our Lord, despised and rejected of men. But a day is coming when everything is going to be changed. God is going to make ready his bride, and he is going to give you a robe for your service. The bride will be beautiful. Secondly, the guests will be glad. Not only will the bride be beautiful, the guests will be glad. Now, remember, right now, we're just betrothed. The Lord Jesus is going to come take us into heaven, and then after the tribulation is over, he'll take us back to earth for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want to tell you that what is in front of us is the best you will ever have imagined in all of human experience. And I know that not just on the basis of the Word of God, but I know that on the basis of my own human experience. Next to the Lord Jesus, there's no one else I love in this world more than my wife, Audrey. She is my bride, and I love her with all my heart. But the love I have for her pales 
compared to the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And that's why I say the best is yet to come. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, when you are a bride at your wedding, a wonderful blessing is to be there for you, but it's also a wonderful blessing if you're a guest and you're invited and you get to share in the magnificence of the moment. Now, certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding, but guests are invited to the bride's wedding. And that's how it worked in a Jewish wedding. And typically it was the groom who invited the guests. Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, we think of the Beatitudes typically in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are actually seven Beatitudes here in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth of the seven. The word makarios, same word as in the Sermon on the Mount. Fulfilled, happy, totally satisfied are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, again, the first century wedding typically took place in three stages. First, there was the legal consummation when you were betrothed through that deal that you made with the dad and you drank from a cup and you sealed the deal. Jesus there in the upper room, he drank from a cup and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back. And then the bridegroom comes back and he claims the bride for himself. And he takes the bride to heaven to his father's house. But then there's the marriage supper. And the marriage supper in a first century Jewish wedding was not like our weddings today that last three or four hours. It would typically last a week. And you pick that up as you read John 2 and the first miracle that Jesus performed. And so in fulfilling the biblical symbol, Christ is completing phase one of the church as people are saved and added to the church day by day. In phase two, he'll come and he'll rapture the church. He'll take us to heaven where we will be evaluated and adorned. And, and then in phase three, oh, he comes back. He brings us back to the earth and we enjoy the marriage supper. Now, the marriage supper it doesn't take place in heaven. It takes place on the earth. And sometimes you see these pictures of the marriage supper, and it looks kind of almost foggy and kind of dreamy. It's actually going to take place on the earth, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in purely human terms, I suppose you cannot have a wedding without a wedding reception, typically, or without a wedding feast. And in order to prepare for the marriage supper, you need to know who's invited. When you have a wedding, we had one here yesterday, you need to know how many was coming. So you knew how much food to prepare. Well, there's a special blessing, Jesus said, on those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the bride, we're going to have some guests there. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 8 and Luke 13. And the bride, the church, the body of Christ that was birthed on Pentecost, they will be the focus, but there'll be some guests that will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus said this in that place, describing the lost religious leaders of his day, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. 
Passages like this have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as guests of the groom. There'll be people like those described in Hebrews 11, the great men and women of faith. There will be men like John the Baptist. John the Baptist described himself, if you remember, as a friend of the bridegroom. But John, of course, was not a part of the church. He lived on the other side of Calvary. He lived ever before the day of Pentecost came, which is why Jesus can say, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He is a great man. I love this guy. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How so? Because John never experienced the blessing of the new covenant that began on the day of Pentecost. But John will be there at this wedding feast, as will be those tribulation saints who find the Lord God. And then he concludes the verse by saying, these are true words of God. That's a necessary note of assurance. God wants to give us a note of assurance because in a day, especially in the first century day, where he's writing to these seven churches where it was very dark and the church will end like it began, the scripture affirms. And in these days, when Christians are increasingly persecuted and mocked, God wants us to know these words are true. It may seem too good to be true, but it is going to happen. Finally, the groom will be honored. Not only will the bride be beautiful, not only will the groom, the guests be blessed, but the groom will be honored. That's affirmed in verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, he fell at his feet to worship him. Who's the him? Well, it goes back to the angel who is introduced to us back in the 18th chapter. He falls at the feet of an angel to worship him. Now, why would such a godly man like the apostle John fall down at the feet of an angel and worship an angel? Well, I just think that the scene here is so impressive. I want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. He's hearing this vast multitude of people praising God in heaven with all of these hallelujahs. I think he's just lost in the emotion of this marriage supper that is being described. His thoughts are so filled with Christ, he just kind of loses his head and he falls at the feet of an angel. And by the way, sometimes Christians get overruled by their emotions. That's why God tells us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so this angel says to him, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The Bible plainly tells us that you're to worship God and him only. You know, when I meet Mormons or JWs, I don't know why I didn't ask. We had four Mormon missionaries show up and meet the pastor on Thursday. That was interesting. But usually I will ask them, do you worship Jesus Christ? And if they were honest, they will always say, no. Yet all of heaven in Revelation 5 is worshiping the Lamb who's upon the throne. And when two women in the garden there fall down and worship Jesus, he doesn't tear his robes and say, 
Don't worship me like Peter did, like Paul did on another occasion. He received the worship. Listen, Jesus, to receive worship, would be aiding and abetting people in idolatry if it was wrong, but it's not wrong, it is right. Don't worship me. Worship God. Worship the living God. And then he says in this statement, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is the very nature, the very purpose of prophecy is to testify to Jesus Christ, to honor him. Now, how are we going to apply this this morning? Let me make several applications as we close. Number one, I'd like to ask you this question. Is your study of prophecy causing you to fall more in love with Jesus Christ? That's an important question to ask and answer for yourself. Is your study of prophecy causing you to fall more in love with Jesus Christ? You see, the ultimate end of prophecy is not what, but it is who. The cults of our day use revelation and other prophetic passages to try to win unsuspecting people, and they put the emphasis on the what. But the Bible puts the emphasis on the who. The cults go door to door, and they put the emphasis on something. God puts it on someone. Oh, yeah, just become a part of our group. You'll have a special place if you're in our group. And it's on something, but not on someone to believe. A true Christian will try to get you to receive someone, namely Jesus. And so many people, sometimes even God's people, when they study the revelation, they get so lost in the details. And in the process, they miss Jesus. And I meet these people with their prophecy charts, and they want to argue with me at some fine point on it. But they're missing Jesus. And their whole study is for naught. Jesus is the subject and the aim of all prophecy. And when he arrives, we will not be glorifying something. We will be glorifying and praising someone. Let me ask you a second question this morning. Are you dressed in the right attire? Are you dressed in the right attire for the coming wedding? Think about this seriously while there's still time. If Jesus Christ were to come back today, would you be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? I can tell you right now, he will not invite you if you have not received him as your Lord. On another occasion during the public ministry of Christ, the Lord told a parable about the kingdom of God. And if you know the parable in it, the king pictures God the Father, and the son in the parable pictures God the Son. And the people who are invited are people who are dressed up in religious clothes, who are dressed in religious acts, but not in the righteous robe that Christ alone can give. And so Jesus says to this man who comes dressed in religion, but he's not born again, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. One Sunday morning, my wife and I were headed to church, and we called for an Uber driver, and he picked us up, and 
There he had a Christian radio station with Christian music playing. And so I asked him, I said, are you a born-again Christian? And he just said flat out no, that he was a Roman Catholic. I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. On a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know, 100, I'm absolutely positive. How sure are you if you died today that you'd go to heaven? And without missing a beat, he said, let me ask you a question. If God is a God of love, then everyone will go to heaven. Don't you believe that? I said, no, I don't. I said, because God is not only a God of love and mercy and grace, He is a God of justice, and He is a God of wrath, and you can praise God for His wrath because His wrath is totally predictable. It is always against sin. But I said to him, He is a God of wrath. And I said, just as if someone murdered your precious wife, you would want justice and you'd want it because you're made in the image of God and your own nature tells you that that would be right and proper, just as these people in Virginia, though I suppose, though the man is killed, a form of justice has come, but not the ultimate form. That will come when he meets God. I said, God is just, and God will punish your sin like he'll punish mine because he is holy. And I said, and if you don't receive the one who set the penalty, but the same one who paid the penalty, if you do not receive Jesus as your Lord, I said, someday you'll remember that God put in your car a pastor from South Carolina to try to plead with you how you could be forgiven and know Jesus. You will remember this conversation throughout all of eternity. And I pled with him to come to Christ. Do you know Christ today? Have you repented of your sin? The word means to change your mind. Or do you want to hold on to Christ while you hold on to the world? If you're not willing to call sin, sin, you don't need a Savior yet. You must change your mind about sin and embrace Jesus as Lord. And if you are saved, what kind of a robe are you preparing for heaven? Can you say, God is adding righteous acts to my life as I serve his people in the local assembly? Or do you just show up here for church and then leave? God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life, and it's a wonderful plan. And there are works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if we will yield to the Spirit of God and learn the Word of God, then God through us will will and work for his good pleasure. And that's his plan for your life and for mine today. Now, our Holy Father, we love you. We thank you for amazing grace because we deserve nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth but we praise you that you who set the penalty paid it there on Golgotha. Help someone today, Father, who's uncertain to realize that today is the day to be saved because it's not earned. You called it the gift of God. Help someone in simple childlike faith to believe your promise that whosoever will may come, 
that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Father, help someone to say in simple faith, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, many here have made that decision. But we're living our lives, but we're not investing them. And the months are turning into years. And our involvement in your local church, which you see as central, is so superficial that if everyone were like us, this church couldn't even function. So God, may that begin to change today. And may we not be satisfied with what we've accomplished. May we forget what lies behind. May we press forward to what lies ahead. May we achieve all that you have for us, that when we do meet our Savior in heaven, he will be able to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Bluffton, you may be in Grace, you may be here, but there's a decision you need to make. You've received Jesus, but you've not taken the first step yet to call him Lord publicly. Jesus taught if it's real on the inside, you won't be ashamed of him on the outside. That's why we offer a public invitation every week. If you've not been baptized after your conversion, then you're not wearing the wedding band that God wants to put on your hands. He calls you as an act, as a symbol of obedience and of your salvation to be baptized. Maybe you've done that. You're a Christian. You need a church home. We need you. If you want to join this morning, come here to the front, and I would be happy to receive you. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision, step out now and meet me here.